Today's scripture readings are taken from the book of Matthew in chapters 20, 21, and 27. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when they had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? But now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at the time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus called the Christ? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. Yeah, if you're here and you've been here the last few weeks in our series of Jesus in his final week, you know that Jesus, when we last left him last week, was on trial for his life. And if you're familiar with the timeline overall of that last week, you can see from the reading today that we've backed up a bit from where we were last week to here in this moment in something called, traditionally, the triumphal entry. Now, I'm backing up for a number of reasons, but most importantly, so you can see this truth, that as we look, as you look at the last week of Jesus's life, you can see especially today that he is forcing the hand of all those around him, rulers, governors, soldiers, citizens, all those around him to make a single choice, will you crown him or will you kill him? That's what he's asking them. He's asking them, will you crown me or will you kill me? Why? Well, because as we're going to see today that Jesus, he's saying here, Jesus has come to be king. He's come to be king. And so to be true to what Jesus is saying and doing here, I want to, graciously, I hope, force our hand in the same way to wrestle and to answer the same question. 
So let's try to do that. Let's look at number one today. Why would anyone want to crown him? Second, why would anyone want to kill him? And third, what can help us choose between the two? Why would you want to crown him? Why would you want to kill him? But what can help us choose between the two? Here we go, number one. And if you're familiar at all with Jesus' sort of, you know, M.O., so to speak, all through his ministry, he's in general refused praise. He's avoided the crowds. He sort of told people to go back home when they've experienced something great from him. But here, by contrast, here in this passage, he moves towards the crowds. He inspires them. He almost whips them into a frenzy. And by the end of this, the people are ready to crown him king. Why? Well, let's look at the first moment of the final week of his life. Look at this. In verse 30, it says, And two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, look at this, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And they cry it out twice, son of David, have mercy on us. Well, what's going on here? Well, what name do the blind men call him? What do they say? Yeah, son of David. What does this mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the son of David was sort of a, a throwback, a callback reference to Israel's greatest king name, of course, David. And David was the one, he was the warrior king who united the peoples, he united the land, he brought peace and prosperity, he defeated Israel's enemies. And so over time, the term son of David came to refer to the one who would be descended from David. He would be Israel's great and true king. He would be the Messiah who would come at Israel's darkest moment and put everything right. And therefore, can you see these two blind men are basically calling out to Jesus. They're calling out, oh, great and true king, oh, true Messiah, the one about whom the whole Old Testament speaks, oh, great king, have mercy on us. And when he's called the great king, what does Jesus reply? Well, he basically answers, you fellas rang, you, you called. And then what does he do? He says, Jesus touched their eyes. Oh, why? Why does he touch them? Well, because the hand is the symbol of divine authority. And what does the hand of God do here? It says, immediately... They regained their sight and followed him. Like Tolkien said of his great king, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. Why would you want to crown him? Well, because this king doesn't silence the hurting. He doesn't turn away from the broken. He restores them heals them. He comes near to them. Well, then though, Jesus decides he's not, he's not just going to walk into the city, right? He's going to ride into the city and he's not just going to ride one animal. He's going to ride two. Why two? Why both a donkey and the colt? Well, he rides two animals because he's doing two things at once. First, he rides the colt here because kings, kings, you know, kings don't walk into cities. Kings ride into cities. Caesar rode into cities. Alexander the Great rode into cities. Conquerors would ride to capitals and come into cities. And do you know what kings and conquerors rode? Yeah, they rode colts. They rode colts into cities. And so by intentionally riding into the capital city of a Roman province 
on a colt, this would be seen like the equivalent of you flying Air Force One into Washington, D.C., and landing it on the front lawn of the White House. It would be a claim to power, a claim that you were indeed in charge now. And when he does this, you can see the people love it. They love this. Why? Oh, because they had been for years, decades, ground to dust under the heel of the boot of the Roman Empire. Why would you want to crown him? Because he, this king, represents an end to evil, to wickedness, to corruption, injustice. That's why. And that's why he rides the colt. And so when the people see the healing first and they see the colt second, they, oh, they love it. They know what exactly is happening here. What do they do? They begin to worship. They start chanting the chorus from the Messiah TV show theme song here. Look at this. This is Psalm 118. This is the Messiah's song. They say this blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are chanting the theme song. They're cheering because their deliverer had come, right? Their healer had come. The great warrior king had come. And this pushes all the religious leaders right over a cliff. Look at them. They say, and the Pharisees say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You've gone too far. See, the Pharisees understand exactly what's going on Do you. Do I? Do we? Jesus here, he's announcing himself. He's given his calling card as king and God. That's blasphemy and it's lunacy if it's not true. So what will Jesus do? Well, he's got a last chance here to, to deny it. He can, he can ignore it, deny it. Will he say, ah, you guys, you got it all wrong. No, this is what he says. He says, I tell you, if these, meaning the people, become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, this isn't a random flippant answer. This is Jesus directly quoting Isaiah 55, 12, which said, again, written centuries before Jesus, said about the kind of the kingdom that a Messiah would bring, the Messiah would bring this kind of kingdom, that the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. Oh, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I am so great, I am so worthy of worship, I can make the rocks praise me. He's pushing you here. Yeah. Now, what do you do with a person like that? I tell you what you don't do. You don't bring him on as your intern for the summer. You know what I'm saying? You don't hire him as your assistant. You don't order a latte at the drive-thru. You don't go on his Facebook page and like him. No, you don't. So you can't say, oh, I like the loving part of Jesus. But I don't want the king authority part of him. I can't take that. I like one but not the other. Uh, see, that would be like me on my wedding day at the, at, the, at the wedding altar, standing across from my beautiful bride-to-be, Carrie, and saying, oh, I love, I'm, I'm looking forward to that intimacy part. It's going to be great. And the part where, you know, you, you maybe cook a meal, if I'm lucky, you know, and where you, you give me like a permanent roommate upgrade for my old stinky folk I was living with, right? I can't wait for all the stuff you do for me, but that, that female part of you, uh, the part that's got emotions and needs and wants, the part that you, that asked me to be faithful to you. Keep your claims off me, woman. Now, ladies, you can imagine what you might say to someone who said that to you. Yeah. You don't do that to your spouse, let alone to the king. See, saving you is what Jesus does. King is who he is. 
Have him in your life. You don't get one without the other. That's why he rides the colt. But here's why he rides the donkey. He rides the donkey because he's fulfilling what the prophet and writer Zechariah had said, again, centuries before this, that the son of David would do. Zechariah said this, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Where are we? Oh, we're in Jerusalem in the passage. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just. The people would say, yes, he's just. He's endowed with salvation. The people would say, yes, he's endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey who, you know, scratched the record. What's this? This is kind of strange. I mean, what's it? Our king, the king, is going to ride on a baby donkey. That's what the word means. I mean, you've you got to be thinking even the Lone Ranger had silver, right? Now, can you imagine what's going through the disciples' minds here when Jesus says, all right, boys, time to enter the city, time to announce my kingship, time to ride. You know, regulators mount up and bring me my donkey. Yeah. What's he doing on this donkey, a baby donkey? He's doing two things. He's making a mockery of power, traditional power, first of all. Making a mockery of power because kings don't ride on beasts of burden. Kings don't ride on lowly animals. Kings don't associate themselves with weak creatures. Oh, except this king does. This king does. Jesus rides on. He publicly associates himself with the lowest and meekest and dumbest, most stubborn of animals. Why would you want to crown him? Oh, it's because he's a king who associates himself with the weak and the lowly, the despised. Oh, but he's also riding this donkey. Did you catch it? A donkey that had never been ridden to show you something about his coming kingdom. Bible scholar, commentator D.A. Carson puts it like this. He says, in the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the one who also calmed the sea. This animal knows and loves its true master for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the complete healing of all nature under the future kingship of Christ. What does this mean for you today? It means this. If Jesus can heal this donkey by his mere presence of its natural fear, if he can guide it without breaking it, if just the touch of Jesus brings out the best in this animal, what might his touch do for you? See, this is telling you Jesus is the only master who can ride you without breaking you. You're gonna be ridden by something in life, a sense of identity, sense of desire for something, sex or money or sports or fame. You're going to be ridden by something. And those things are terrible gods. They're false gods. They ride you and they break you. Jesus is the only master who can ride us without breaking us. Why would you want to crown him as king? Oh, because he has the power to heal. He's come to overturn evil. He associates with the lowly and he heals from fear. He frees from fear. That's why someone would crown him as king. But here's my next question. My next question. What in the world happened? What happened in like just a week, under a week? How did Jesus go from here in this moment to what we're going to see next? Why, if he does all of this, why would anyone want to kill him? Let's look and ask. Number two, why, was any, why would anyone, someone want to kill him? All right. Let's leave this moment here, arguably the high point of Jesus' life on the colt and the donkey in Jerusalem. Flash forward back 
to where we were last week. There Jesus is on trial for his life. He's been being condemned for blasphemy before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Then he's taken away to be sentenced by a man named Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Look at this. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Jesus is standing before this man, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, because only Rome had the power to execute in that day. The Jewish state did not. But Pilate, he can't find anything wrong with Jesus. And so Pilate, he comes up with a plan to get rid of Jesus without having to kill him. Here's his plan. A little bit of a backstory for you. Verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So Pilate here, he thinks that the contrast between, you know, the wicked Barabbas and the nice guy Jesus will become apparent and the people will vote for the good person. Right. But when the people gather together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas! Or Jesus, who's called the Christ. You know, you leave the one till last you're really wanting to suggest. But Pilate's foolproof plan backfires. But they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who's called Christ? They all said, crucify him. Then Pilate's stunned. He's on the ropes here. He's thinking, these people, they're Jews. They hate me. They hate the Roman Empire. They would want anyone back who had like a shot of overturning me, right? Anyone who could possibly stand up to me. Surely the common person would want back alive. So he asks again, just a double check. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. It's stunning. In a week, Jesus goes from being a public figure, a public hero, to public enemy, number one. The same crowd that cheered him is now the crowd that's jeering him, calling for his crucifixion, a punishment that only the worst class of criminal got. What happened? Well, what happened was, what I believe was, something almost every scholar commentator says is this. They believe, I believe, that the crowds turned on him, hear this, out of a profound sense of disillusionment. A profound sense of disillusionment. You say, why? Well, here's why. See, the Jews lived in a moment where they anticipated, where they expected that their Messiah and deliverer and king would come and free them from Roman occupation and oppression. So when Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, right, when he begins to raise the dead, do miracles, then when he begins to ride to Jerusalem, when he opens the blind eyes, gets on the colt, heads to the capital, that's why they go nuts. They think this is it. Our moments arrive. This is the moment. You know, our grandpappies have told us about our parents have told us about this is the moment we are the inheritors of all the hopes of ancient Israel our dream is coming true but Jesus rode in and what really changed Hmm? what changed were things different not a week later no they weren't they were still poor Caesar was still in charge they were still oppressed so why would you want to kill him well You'd want to kill him if, he fe- if you felt that he had let down not just you, not just your family, but the whole nation in the most soul-crushingly way possible. You, you want to kill him if you felt he had held up your greatest dream only to dash it in front of your eyes. Why would you want to kill him? You'd want to kill him if you felt the deepest sense of betrayal possible when you feel someone's lied to you, let you down, used you, abandoned you, and you'd want to kill him if you wanted to get rid of any evidence 
that prove that your heart once had hope. That's why you want to kill him. What a strange kind of a king Jesus is here. He doesn't do anything the way anyone wants. And you know what? I think it's still pretty easy to feel the same way about Jesus today, especially if you're a Christian. You've served God for any length of time. You tried it at some point. Maybe you you walked away. You know, people give up on Jesus Christ all the time when things don't go their way. When they feel he's not done enough for them as quickly or powerfully as they would have wanted. And you know this is true. If you've been struggling with uh, a disability or, or pain or injury any length of time, you wonder if he's so powerful. Where's my healing? You've been single for a long time. You wonder, hey, God, you know, like, there's like 7 billion people on the planet. One of them ought to be mine. Odds aren't too bad, right? I mean, where's my spouse, right? You've been married, divorced, or heading that way. You think, what went wrong? If you lost your job, like you heard earlier, you're, you're waiting for one again and again and again. You wonder, I thought God was for me. I thought he was with me in this. If he's so powerful, See, personal disillusionment with Jesus is such a powerful and potentially destructive force in our lives. I mean, think about it. Think about John the Baptist, right? Jesus' cousin earlier in the life of Jesus, John the Baptist. He comes on the scene, and he's this powerful public speaker figure. And he, he sees Jesus, and he says, oh, look, everybody. There he is, the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sin of the world. Look how Jesus is. And John the Baptist even literally takes a a page out of the Wayne's World textbook and says, I'm not worthy. That's what he does. And then Jesus turns and says about John. He says, you know, look at John. Of all the people ever born, John is the single greatest human being who's ever lived. That's what Jesus says about him. Oh, it's astonishing. But throw John in prison. Let him suffer and squirm. Guess what he does? He asks, are you really the one? Or should we expect someone else? He gets disillusioned. See, it just shows even the very best people get disillusioned with Jesus sometimes. But there's a second kind of disillusionment people feel with Jesus, not just personal. But I think there's actually a kind of a corporate disillusionment people feel, not just with Jesus, but with Jesus's followers, a corporate disillusionment with the church, the church of Jesus. And I'm not just talking about the kind of radically self-centered thing that ruins Christians' lives and breaks churches, which, you know, that brilliant church hunters video that's been making the rounds on the internet. It's captured and brought to light, and if you haven't watched it, you should. And that video, oh man, it just exposes, blows the doors off, self-centeredness we bring into church, no matter what age or background or ethnicity you're from, you know that that I'm talking about. It's that thing that you ask when you come in, am I going to feel tingly when I'm here? Am I going to feel tippy, tippy toads at the bottom of me? No, no. All the way to the bottom. And listen, if that's what you're looking for, let me tell you, there can be only one member of that church. And actually, it wouldn't be a church. It would actually be more like a shrine to self. Uh-oh. Because church necessarily involves more than one person. Church is like grits. You know, you don't just order a grit. They come in like in a package deal. There's grits. There's multiple grits together. That's how church is. It's people all together in one place. Like, read the epistles. You know, there's a whole lot in there about loving the people next to you serving the people next to you. Not a lot in there about getting irritated because you got the back parking spot in lot C or the coffee bar line closed. 
when you got to service because, oh, well, you know, you were coming a couple minutes late or your little leader in promised land wasn't just, you know, led how you wanted it. No, no, I'm not talking about that. That's not disillusionment. That's just unfiltered self-centeredness. Corporate disillusionment, though, is something you experience when you come into a Christian community like this and you got high hopes for it, right? You know what I'm talking about. When you've got high hopes, when you feel good, when you feel your heart starting to begin to believe and have high hopes and you think, oh, I like the vision. I love what's happening here. I like those people. And you get excited about it and then something happens. Somebody says something to you. They shouldn't or you get to be friends with that person online and you're friends now, but then you're shocked. Shocked, I say to find out that they called themselves a Christian. And they like that or they did that. And what happens? I mean, like the exorcist, I mean, your head just begins to spin all around and around and around. And then you really get to know those people and you find out they think that or do that and you can, it can all go sideways real fast. And especially right here. In a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, you can get disillusioned pretty quickly because you come in here right all kind of different people and it's so pretty you know it's like shiny happy people holding hands you know like the b-52's dream has come to life right here and then the election comes Uh oh or a shooting happens another shooting happens or the war begins, or that tweet is sent, or whatever and the world seems to go crazy and these people say this but they shouldn't But those people don't say that, though they should. And you think, I thought we were all in this together. See, corporate disillusionment can happen to even the best of people. It can wreck people's faith. And so with all that in mind, I like to give you now, just pause for a moment. I want to give you five corporate anti-disillusionment word pills you can take to keep you from going there in your heart. And I want to give you five things to remember all fast here real quick. Five things to remember about this church, about this multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, a small part of God's great big kingdom that can help keep you grounded no matter what. Hope you can remember. Take this today, these thoughts. First, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church is not a strategy. It's a choice. If you think we're here because it's a strategy, we want to grow, we can get more people that way. People ask me that all the time. This is, a, I mean, how do you guys do this here? How do you all do this? I mean, I'd like to have all these people in my church. I say, it's not a strategy. It's a choice. I mean, it's too hard to just pull off a strategy. No, no. It's simply a choice that we've made and we're going to live by no matter what. Because I decided, and I hope you will, that my life is better being around people of different backgrounds and cultures than I'd ever get. My monoethnic, single culture silo on my own. It's not a strategy, it's a choice. Second, this is not a way to show off our church. It's a way to show off the gospel. I've heard this countless times. People say something to the effect of this. Maybe this is you today. You know, I'm not a Christian or it's been a while since I've been in church, but I come in here. I see all these different kinds of people. It makes me ask, what can bring this group together? My heart feels a kind of a hope for the future. See, that's the gospel being shown off. They have sort of ivy drip from the future coming to your heart right now. Third, this isn't a grid to enforce. What we have is a dream to hold up. 
We don't have all kind of people on stage and places and leadership because there's some kind of grid. Like we got a quota to fill. No, we have a dream we're holding up of a better kind of a future. What heaven looks like and will look like all over the globe one day. A dream of a kingdom where all kind of folks are welcome and loved. Fourth, this isn't what we have here. It's not an idea to like, but it's a people to love. And if you hear nothing else I say today, I want you to hear this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Lutheran pastor, pastor, theologian, wrote a book called Living Life Together in the World War II era, and he put it like this. He said, he who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest. What he's saying is, if you come into a church with a dream of how it should be, but you love your dream more than the people... For whom Christ died, you begin to destroy the dream. See, Jesus didn't die as much for a dream as he did for people, you and me. Let's not love our dream more than the actual people that Jesus died for. And finally, this church is not a place where you worship with people who agree with you on everything, but where you worship with people who agree on one thing. And we are here not because of an allegiance to a political party or philosophy. And if you're here and you equate Christianity with nice Christian conservative values, you're misguided. And if you come in and you equate this church with progressive, free-thinking, open-minded, liberal values, you're misguided. And you're in the wrong church. We're here because we have pledged allegiance to one king who has dominion and authority. And I use an old phrase, holds sway over our lives. And when we allow him that, when we give that, we relinquish that to him. Now, bit by bit by bit, he reclaims our lives, reclaims the world, reclaims this place, bit by bit by bit. Why would we want to crown him? Oh, because this king loves and he heals and he leads like no one else. Why would someone want to kill him though? Because we don't like how he runs our lives sometimes. And the pain of that, the pain of personal or corporate disillusionment with Jesus is too painful. And we want to get rid of that. Put it to death. Put it away from our lives. So, 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 what can help us figure it out? What can help us choose between the two? Let's see here. Number three. Let's go back into our story and go back to that last moment we saw with Pilate and Jesus and Barabbas. I want to ask the question, what must it have been like for Barabbas in that moment? Well, what must it have been like for him? He's a criminal, right? Hardened in prison. He's, the Mark's, excuse me, Matthew's gospel says he's notorious, you know, even before Biggie. Sorry, I had to say that. You know, Mark's gospel tells us he was a murderer in prison for insurrection. What? Must it have been like to have been him? He's moments away from being executed and the the prison door opens, a light shines and a voice calls, Barabbas, you're free. How can I be free? He must have wondered. Oh, someone named Jesus is dying in your place. He would have been told because that's what was happening. Jesus was dying on the very cross meant for Barabbas. And so Barabbas whose name literally means son of the father, is freed by Jesus, the true son of a better father. And right there, you've got the meaning of Christianity in a snapshot. Jesus, the innocent, dies. So a guilty person 
can go free. But what must it have been like for Barabbas, right? I mean, what would it do to a person to know that he went free and lived, though he was guilty, because someone who was innocent and mistakenly died in his place? Well, the Bible doesn't actually tell us, but one Christian writer uh, did actually think about it. He asked the same question, and he wrote a book about that thought. And that book got turned into a Hollywood movie called, of course, Barabbas and big cast and diverse cast there. Uh, The movie wondered what Barabbas' life would have been like after hearing he was set free by Jesus. And so in the book and the movie, Barabbas, though he remains a criminal, he wrestles for 20 years with the guilt of going free. And throughout the movie, he's sort of like the man who can't die. He survives being sent to the sulfur mines and people die there of exposure, but he lives and then he survives an earthquake, though someone he's chained to dies. And then he survives being in the arena with gladiators and because he finally beats a one gladiator, he's released from prison by the emperor, the Caesar, Nero. But in the final scene of the movie, when ancient Rome's on fire, Barabbas reverts to his criminal ways. And he begins to set the city on fire himself. And he starts fires. He's found out. He's arrested. He's put in prison. And while he's there, he meets other Christians who were there falsely accused of setting fire to the city because that's what actually happened and Nero did. And, and while he's in prison, he meets the leader of a disciples group, a man by the name of Simon Peter. And when they meet and find out who each other really are, Barabbas begins to unload all his disillusionment about Jesus and who God is. And Barabbas says this, the quote goes, why can't God make himself plain? What's become of all the fine hopes, the trumpets, the angels, all the promises, every time I've seen it end up the same way with torments and dead bodies with no good come of it, all for nothing. And Peter answers, do you think they persecute us to destroy nothing? Or for that matter, do you think that what has battered on your soul for 20 years has been nothing? It wasn't for nothing that Christ died. Mankind isn't nothing. In his eyes, each individual man is the whole world. He loves each man as though there were no other. And those words right there, after 20 years, push Barabbas to finally ask the question he's wanted to ask all along. Barabbas says, I was the opposite of everything he taught, wasn't I? Why did he let himself be killed instead of me? Peter answers, because being farthest from him, you were the nearest. It's beautiful. Because being farthest from him, you were the nearest. The realization of this, it sinks into his heart. All his disillusionment with life and God and others goes away. He realized that Jesus died literally for him in his place for love, to pull Barabbas near, and that changes his life. Do you realize this today? Do you realize this? That being farthest from him, though, you feel like that, but you're actually the nearest. See, when you realize you're Barabbas, it changes everything. And that thought right there, the thought that breaks us out of disillusionment towards God, resentment towards people in the church, is seeing that we were the ones, forget everybody else, we were the ones who really deserve death. But through the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, now he's brought us near and given us eternal life. And you know why so many voices, so many voices, our culture today, critics, 
actors, celebrities, entertainers, writers, bloggers, maybe you. They say they can't stand this thought. They don't like it, the idea that Jesus' crucifixion was necessary. They say, no, his example here, it's just masochism. They say Jesus' example of nonviolence, Jesus' example of resisting and not resisting evil is saying that God is letting evil win. That's saying we should let evil win. Jesus' example here is saying we should let people walk all over us. They say his example here justifies violence and abuse towards women and minorities. But do you notice the word they always use? They always use the word example. Example, because they don't realize, can't realize, won't realize, he didn't come as our example alone. He came as our substitute in our place. He came to be guilty in our place and treated as we should have been treated. I mean, because how, think about it, how do the truly guilty act? Oh, the truly guilty don't resist arrest. They don't look for a way out. The guilty don't fight against what they've done. See, Jesus isn't here before Pilate in the courtroom as our example. He's here as our substitute. And the writer of the gospel includes this team of Barabbas. So you won't. You can't possibly miss it. Because think about it. Let's ask, what did Barabbas need to go free? What could have freed him? Did he need an example? No. To go free and live, Barabbas needed a substitute. He needed a substitute. Someone in his place, so do you, so do I, so do we. The gospel is that those who realize they're the farthest, they get brought nearest. And, but those who see themselves as being worthy, entitled, deserving something, they get left out. You know, over the years, my wife Carrie and I, we've had lots of opportunities, like many of you, I'm sure, Probably some of you have more reason than we did to get disillusioned with Jesus or with his people or with his church. We've, we've worked for some pretty tough, bad leaders, bad pastors, people who sort of, you know, rode the donkeys and broke them, so to speak, who used the church, who used the money, used the people. And we know lots of people, though, who went through the same thing as we did. And yet it ruined them in a way. It caused them to walk away from God, walk away from his people and church. But I can, it's hard, so hard. I thought about this this week. I asked, what's kept us? And I think it's this passage right here. Recognizing that I am, we are, we've been Barabbas too. We don't deserve anything. But yet, there's a king who's become a criminal. So we criminals can be brought near by the king, brought up next to his side, given all that the king has. Is this the king? Why would you want to crown him? Oh, because this is the king who does this, the king who dies for you in your place. He heals, he restores, he loves in a way no other human king could. As you think, as we consider this church, let's go to him now in prayer and answer the question for ourselves.